Good morning. Welcome to this conference. Um, I am David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute. Appreciate having you here. I know there are more people who are going to be coming in, but we're going to go ahead and get started and try to stay on time today. The subject of our conference today is this. In a democracy, under the rule of law, does the executive branch of government have the power to implement laws the way the president would prefer they had been written, or is the executive bound by the law the same way you and I are? The four lawsuits we're talking about today involve the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, but they are not lawsuits about Obamacare. They are lawsuits about the rule of law. Back in 2011, the IRS quietly implemented quietly reversed its interpretation of a crucial aspect of the PPACA. It announced it would implement the health care laws, health insurance subsidies, and the penalties on employers and individuals who failed to purchase coverage, even in states that did not establish a so-called health insurance exchange. Michael Cannon, one of our scholars here at Cato, and Professor Jonathan Adler, who will be speaking later today, uh, were the first to blow the whistle on this problem. The ACA, they pointed out, only authorizes those taxes and those subsidies in a state if the state establishes an exchange. The IRS persisted. It's been spending billions of dollars and subjecting tens of millions of employers and individuals to penalties that are not permitted by the ACA, not authorized by an act of Congress. As you might imagine, the people subjected to those illegal taxes don't like that, and that's why they have filed four lawsuits, Pruitt v. Burwell, Halbig v. Burwell, King v. Burwell, and Indiana v. IRS. Rather than challenging the ACA, the plaintiffs are claiming that the executive branch of the government is not implementing the law faithfully. They are asking the courts to force the IRS to do so. Despite the fact that the president has come under bipartisan criticism for unilaterally rewriting parts of his health care law, a lot of people thought these lawsuits were crazy. That is, until someone unearthed this video of health economist Jonathan Gruber, who is widely hailed as one of the key architects of the ACA. If you're a state and you don't set up an exchange, that means your citizens don't get their tax credits. So there is a guy who knows more about this law than anybody else does, and he says if you're a state and you don't set up an exchange, that means your citizens don't get their tax credits. He could read. He could write. He helped create it. That's what he said. The fact that two out of three standing opinions issued by federal courts in these cases sided with the plaintiffs against the government didn't hurt in changing people's minds about the viability of the lawsuits either. This conference is very timely. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court will meet to decide whether to take up one of these lawsuits. Two of those lawsuits were filed by state attorneys general, and we are delighted to have both of them here with us today. In just a moment, we'll be hearing from Indiana Attorney General Greg Zeller. At lunch, we will hear from Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt, who was the first to challenge the IRS in court. In between, we will have one panel of scholars debating the legal merits of these cases and another uh, debating the impact this issue is having and could have on health care reform. 
We're proud to hold this conference today and proud of the role the Cato Institute has played in this and other areas to make presidents of both parties respect the rule of law. So now it's my honor to introduce our opening keynote speaker for the event. On October 8, 2013, Greg Zeller became the fourth person and the second attorney general to file a legal challenge to that IRS regulation in Indiana v. IRS. He was joined as a plaintiff by 39 Indiana school systems. Those public school systems complain that they have had to eliminate jobs and reduce the hours of non-certified support staff, including bus drivers, food service staff, and instructional assistants to fewer than 30 hours a week because the IRS is unlawfully subjecting them to the employer mandate, even though the statute itself says they are exempt. The IRS's illegal mandate did create one job, however. One school system had to hire someone to make sure its part-time employees were not working too much. Greg Zeller has been Indiana's 42nd Attorney General since 2008. Prior to state government, he spent 10 years as an assistant to Senator and Vice President Dan Quayle, first in the Senate office, then in the office of the Vice President. He was also in private practice for 10 years after getting his law degree from the Indiana University School of Law, where he now, in addition to being Attorney General, also teaches constitutional law. Welcome, Greg Zeller. Well, thank you, David, and uh, thank you to the Cato Institute for uh, hosting this. I'm glad the uh, uh, the lead-in kind of uh, took away some of the things that I was going to point out, so uh, that I'll be able to kind of condense this, and hopefully we can take some questions. Um, but let me let me do just a few things as as part of my own lead-in. Uh, I'm almost sorry that you. Uh, mentioned my 10 years in the federal government with Senator and Vice President Quayle. In, in Indiana, I deny it. You know, I've learned uh, the federal government is not a well-loved institution and Congress even worse. So uh, I don't know, I guess it was a Clinton-esque kind of deny, deny, deny. So I say that that was my brother Skippy who was actually in the White House and it was not uh, your attorney general. Uh, but I think I've, I've um, resolved my checkered past by suing the federal government a number of times. Uh, that's very popular in the state of Indiana. Uh, let, me, uh, let me explain, you know, when I come to Washington, I have to explain a little about states. Um, what you've read in books and what people think about states uh, in Washington uh, often is not exactly uh, true. So first of all, it's true that all states are sovereign. Uh, and yet, all states are not alike. Uh, since we're sovereign, we have our own ability to create our sovereign government uh, in the way that we choose. Uh, Indiana is one of six states uh, that has chosen what I think is a little more conservative path uh, from our history. Uh, and we've created the Office of the Attorney General as a statutory office. Uh, the other states uh, are all constitutional office holders. Uh, but I serve as uh, Indiana's Attorney General under statutory authority. And the distinction is one that I think merits some attention uh, because if you're a constitutional officer, uh, you have some of the areas of parents patriae, uh, which would allow you to do things based on the need of the population uh, that you serve. 
Uh, if you're a statutory officer, uh, you represent state government. So the claims that we bring are much more aligned with defending uh, the sovereign state. We don't have the same uh, expansive role to be able to represent uh, the people as individuals. So I think it's a distinction that plays out in this area. Uh, a little uh, history that uh, proves out that point. In, um, in the lead up to the passage of the Affordable Care Act, uh, our Senator Richard Luger uh, recognized that under the statute of the Attorney General uh, that uh, my office was uh, able to do research for uh, the senators. So this dates back to kind of the quaint days when senators uh, represented state legislators uh, under the set before the 17th Amendment. Uh, so Senator Luger, seeing the, uh, the coming of the Affordable Care Act, asked my office to do a report. Uh, some months later, we created a 55-page report uh, that told the senator that there were some substantial constitutional issues being raised uh, by the way they've structured uh, the Affordable Care Act. And I threw in kind of in conclusion that uh, should it pass in its current form, which at the time it was unlikely, everybody assumed that it would be changed when it went through uh, the House and back to the Senate. Uh, so I said that if it passed in its current state, uh, I would feel compelled uh, to challenge the constitutionality. So I'd already anticipated what would happen, uh, but I didn't realize that they would pass it in the same form. Uh, when it did pass, uh, there were a number, I think 13 uh, attorneys general who filed maybe minutes after the president's signature. Uh, Indiana was not one of those. Uh, the original lawsuit focused on individual mandate. And again, since I don't represent individuals in that same capacity, uh, my office, I felt, may lack standing uh, to bring a claim based on the individual uh, rights of our citizens as opposed to the authority of the state. Uh, so what we did is uh, we worked with some of my colleagues. Later in the first uh, amended complaint, uh, that was filed, we added uh, the complaint dealing with the uh, expansion of Medicaid under what we felt was a coercive uh, mandate uh, from the federal government to coerce a sovereign state. Uh, so we joined in the whole, the whole lawsuit, uh, but our real focus was on that relationship between the federal government and the state being coerced to uh, expand our Medicaid prop program uh, or lose all of the uh, monies that we currently were getting uh, from the previous deal with the federal government. So I think that um, as you look through the, the, um, the court's decision, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, again, I'll throw out a shout out to our Hoosier-born uh, 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 Supreme Court justice, uh, but the, the three points that were... Um, made clear in his uh, decision uh, was first there were limits on the Commerce Clause, which I think many states were glad to see that they finally had reached the cabining uh, function. So there are limits to the, the Commerce Clause authority of Congress. Uh, second, he did, uh, they did strike down the mandatory expansion of Medicaid. Uh, again, I think it was his words that uh, a gun to the head uh, is the type of coercion that is not allowed under the Constitution. 
Uh, and finally, in saving the um, uh, constitutionality of the case or of the um, uh, Affordable Care Act, he found that there was a taxing authority being uh, implemented by the federal government in which they had that authority to have a tax penalty. So when you look through the history since the passage uh, and this, the Supreme Court's decision, uh, all of the states have now made their choice uh, whether to create an exchange. Uh, I think there's 16 now that have their own exchange. There's eight who have come up with a hybrid between a state and federal exchange. And the remaining 26 states, uh, including Indiana, uh, have only a federal exchange. Now, that was the decision of a sovereign in each case uh, based on our authority as a state sovereign. Uh, it's not mandated by the federal sovereign. It was something that each state chose. It's not the way the Affordable Care Act was written, uh, because if you look at the first few paragraphs of the act, it says this is an exercise of Commerce Clause authority. Uh, that's what we defended against. That's what we challenged. Uh, we were, I'll admit, a little bit surprised about the saving under a tax penalty, uh, but that's, that's not the subject of my remarks today. The, um, the real issue, uh, if you think about it from the perspective of Indiana and one of six states that are uh, statutory creatures, it's really a question of whether the federal government now has uh, authority to regulate state sovereigns under the taxing authority. Uh, we know that the federal government can regulate states uh, as employers under the Commerce Clause authority, which again, the first two paragraphs make it pretty clear, uh, Congress thought they were exercising that Commerce Clause authority. Uh, so you have uh, the Supreme Court precedent uh, that says that since states hire employees out of the stream of commerce, uh, we're subject to federal regulation, um, uh, under Fair Labor Standards Acts and things like that. So uh, the history of that Commerce Clause authority goes back to National League of Cities, uh, where the states actually won uh, under a 5-4 vote saying that we were not subject to uh, federal regulation under Commerce Clause. Then Garcia uh, overturned that, again 5-4, uh, saying that the federal government uh, can require states as employers uh, to be uh, subject to those Fair Labor Standard Acts and uh, terms and conditions of employment. Now, I'm still not happy about Garcia, and frankly, I'd like another shot because 5-4 uh, is not exactly, you know, let's say a permanent rule that the federal government can regulate my state and all sovereigns uh, under Commerce Clause authority. Uh, but again, it's the current rule of law, and I'll respect it uh, even without liking it. Uh, but the question remains when Chief Justice Roberts says that uh, this is not an exercise of Commerce Clause authority. Uh, it's really a tax penalty. So now the question under kind of the rule of law is whether the federal government has the ability uh, through the IRS to regulate uh, my sovereign state uh, under a taxing authority. Uh, you know, and again, uh, what uh, has been taught in law schools all around the country over the years is that states as sovereigns are not subject uh, to federal taxation. We don't um, have a tax form that we fill out. So I point that all out 
really to demonstrate that under our challenge, it's not so much just, uh, and again, uh, Scott Pruitt can uh, explain from a constitutional officer's position uh, the, the focus on challenging the act. But I think ours uh, really lends itself to this question of federalism, whether uh, the precedent will now be set uh, that the IRS can regulate our states under a taxing authority uh, that's hitherto unknown. This tax penalty is not the same as a regular tax. Uh, so if you read the uh, what I would consider a somewhat draconian tax penalty, uh, the math is that you count up how many employees you have. Uh, the state of Indiana has 28,000 uh, employees, uh, and you multiply $2,000 times your workforce, and that is your tax penalty. Uh, even if you were just to miss a few employees being covered under the Affordable Care Act. So again, this is that same type of threatening coercion uh, that doesn't really fit in the relationship between sovereigns. Uh, the 39 school corporations who've joined uh, I was talking to a few people in the hall. They're usually not standing next to me uh, during my election process. Let's uh, leave it at that. Uh, but they were very concerned about the way we educate our children and the way our school corporations as a, as a part of our sovereign government has been structured. We have a school board. Uh, they elect uh, the people who run the school uh, and they use part-time workers. So it's bus drivers, uh, the teacher's aide, uh, the people that work in the cafeteria. Under Indiana's law, 30 hours or 37 and a half hours, uh, anything less than that is part-time. Uh, a lot of our uh, schools are run by part-time employees under our statute. Now they're busy trying to comply with 30 hours as uh, full-time, uh, so they've therefore had to create a whole process of moving people down to 30 hours or less. Uh, it is a full-time job to keep track of that because of the nature of this draconian uh, tax penalty. Uh, when they came to me with their, let's say, complaints, I said that I would be perfectly willing to defend if they were sued uh, under a tax penalty, uh, as I am willing to uh, defend my state. But I, as I thought about it, it was not enough to wait to be penalized, but to challenge in advance. So I think the idea of a declaratory action uh, that would raise this to the courts so that before we restructure our sovereign government's uh, employment structure uh, to comply with a federal dictate, uh, in keeping with the uh, nature of federalism and the sovereignty of my client, I thought it was better to challenge in advance. And again, it's not a challenge over all of Obamacare, which is, uh, as it's been kind of labeled, uh, but it really reflects the fact that uh, whether the federal government can require uh, the sovereign state uh, as an employer under their taxing authority uh, to be subject to the same dictates as if it were under the Commerce Clause as originally written. So the, uh, the $56 million threat uh, of the state uh, is a tax penalty that I didn't want to wait to have to defend. I thought I would bring in advance. 
Uh, so we're now to the point where we're, uh, we've already had our oral argument. I thought it went uh, fairly well as they go. Uh, but at, at stake is really the, um, uh, the intergovernmental tax immunity uh, that we've lived with as part of our Federalist Society uh, and the sovereignty of each. Uh, I've joked among our legislators, uh, and some of them didn't think it was a joke, uh, but I've talked about if there was a tax penalty, uh, we could have 100 uh, percent reciprocal tax. Uh, the state uh, could have a dollar-for-dollar dollar tax on any tax penalty subject to uh, any of our sovereign uh, aspects, entities in our state. Uh, so if you think about it, if we're going to break the, the deal between the sovereigns of intergovernmental tax immunity, if the federal government has the tax penalty authority, uh, does that mean that states as sovereigns themselves might have some taxable right uh, over our federal uh, players? So, uh, again, I said it as a joke. I'm not sure whether it's... Uh, uh, might show up as a bill later in Indiana's legislature when they come back in January. But I think t treating ta states uh, not as sovereigns but as taxable entities uh, is really the issue uh, that we raise uh, for people's consideration. Uh, and if you, I know there's a number of people from the academy, um, uh, if you contend that states are taxable entities, and can be taxed as employers, uh, it's not about health care. It's not about Obamacare. Uh, it's really about the uh, question of federalism and what is left of federalism, federalism if the federal government has the ability to regulate stat states under their taxing authority. Uh, so with that question, uh, I think I'll uh, conclude by saying, uh, you know, it is the obligation of states uh, to check the federal government. Uh, I often complain that we've not done enough. Uh, we often accept federal funds uh, and essentially have sold part of our sovereignty, uh, and we complain about the strings, uh, but we have entered into a deal with a sovereign uh, and are subject to the rules and regulations. Uh, I do think that it's time that states uh, do more in the role of checks and balances that are uh, constitutional uh, authors uh, thought we would play. Uh, and again, I can complain that we no longer have the ambassadors uh, of our states uh, in the world's greatest deliberative body. Uh, but I do think that without a Senate that will check uh, the federal government on behalf of states, it's going to be left to attorneys general and our state governments to do more in terms of being sovereign and challenging the, the acts of our federal uh, sovereign friends uh, when they get out of line. So with that, I'll conclude, and do we take questions? Or? I think we might have time right. for one or two questions. Are there people with questions? Right there, and please wait for a microphone to get to you so everybody can hear. And please give us your name and affiliation, if any that you're willing to admit to. Uh, uh, I'm Sam Kasman, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, in regard to the Gruber video, the Gruber video was discovered a few days after the How Big 
and King rulings were handed down. And by the way, I don't know if Richard Weinstein is here in the audience. I think he ought to be uh, thanked for having been the first to actually find it posted on the web. I'll reserve for CEI the credit for launching it into its well-deserved viral notoriety. But my question is, um, if you look at the Oklahoma ruling, uh, that has a very interesting discussion of the Gruber video. My and I was wondering to what extent, if any, that video played a role in the more recent briefing and or hearing in your case? Well, it was uh, an unusual oral argument in front of the district court. Um, uh, Judge Lawrence asked for it uh, because he did have some questions that he thought would help in, in a framework of oral arguments. So we're still at the district court level and it was not uh, we're not briefing and arguing in front of the Court of Appeals. Uh, so it was very limited in terms of his questions. Uh, and I think it really didn't explore anything like what I saw come out of the Oklahoma case as it went up to the Court of Appeals. 